Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. Great to have you here today. We are in this series, uh, Back to the Table. It's a reflection back to a series that we spent some time with uh, last year in, in Luke. It's following Jesus as he gathers often around tables and in community. What we see with Jesus in this book, Luke, is that he's, it seems, always going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. It's a constant practice of his to be in community. And so community is really where this series lands. And, and there's a sadness to that, because this week, I temporarily lost faith in community and in the goodness of humanity. I had my iPad stolen. And I had my iPad stolen in a place that I should never have been, that I just don't belong. It was while getting my hair cut. Um, it was this poor decision, right? It's like I knew I shouldn't go. I knew that the day was going to be bad any time uh, that I choose to get a haircut. And I know that when I go to a place, I'll tell them how much I want off. And I know repeatedly they'll cut off more than I asked them to. And so when the stylist, true to form, cut off four inches instead of two, I knew that the day was on a downward uh, spiral. It's maybe my fault because I gave him the measurement in centimeters instead of inches. I had faith in his ability to convert simple mathematics. I didn't really. I, I, I can use inches as well. I'm uh, very adept in different pieces of language. But I, I was there getting my hair cut and then afterwards looked around and my tablet had just disappeared. Uh, and so there'd be no one in there. It was particularly quiet. There was just me and one other person getting their hair cut. And, and this person, the stylist, seemed to know particularly particularly well. So when I complained, he said, no, it can't have been stolen. And his assistant said, no, it definitely was. I remember seeing him sitting there with it. It must have been Tim. Uh, and so we had the awkward moment where the stylist had to call up his friend and say, did you steal my customer's iPad? It's just a difficult question to ask. And his answer, of course, was, no, of course I didn't steal your customer's iPad. And then this horrifying pause when he went, Oh, no, I did. I'm so embarrassed. I can't believe it. Apparently, he had one that looked similar. Apparently, Apple in their just mass production of things have caused this terrible dilemma where someone's iPad can look exactly like yours. And he'd driven off with it, looked across on his passenger seat, and found that my iPad was now sitting with his iPad. And my faith in humanity was restored when he drove it all the way back to my house for me and turned up in this brand new huge SUV, looking unlike someone who would need to steal my iPad in order to provide himself with food to live. We think about community and we have those challenging moments maybe. Maybe you've had those moments where you've experienced something and said, I don't know if I want to do community. I don't know if I want more friends. Maybe I have the people that I have. I'm doing life with the people I'm doing life with. My very small core is enough. Maybe you've known them for years. Perhaps you've lived in one of those environments that just requires years and years to build any kind of traction. Denver is kind of transient, so maybe Denver is this opportunity to, to meet new people and to build friendships more quickly. But I have friend, a friend who does ministry in an area where nobody leaves and nobody moves and very few people come in. And one of his reflections has been this. I live in a place where I've now known people for five years. 
the problem is they've all known each other for 30 years and I can never catch up. If I stay another 10 years, they'll have known each other for 40-something years and it just doesn't seem like I can build that community. Maybe we have tensions with community for all sorts of different reasons. We, we want people that are very similar to us. We don't want to have to do the early work. And yet, this early church movement that we're investigating, this movement that was left with the task of copying what Jesus did and putting it into practice, well, they are a distinct community of people. Last week, we looked at the story of this old festival, Shavuot, this Jewish festival where a group of people were told became a community. The rabbis would say of Shavuot, they became a nation and Shavuot, and, and this Shavuot, same as Pentecost, this festival we celebrated last week, we might say that the early church became a community, became a movement on Pentecost. This early church seems centered around relationships. So when we read that Jesus was constantly going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal, well, it seems they reflected what he did. They took his practice and made it their own, they constantly gathered together. This is my sort of thesis about the early church, that it looked more like a circle than a line. We talked about circles last week and about gathering together. They gathered together regularly in these smaller groups. And we had 124 people sign up for circles. You can be part of it too if you go outside and find something that you're passionate about to sign up to. But it also looked more like a table than an auditorium. It looked more like a table than an auditorium. This early church in following Jesus, in being empowered by this piece of, this, this spirit that we'll talk about in just a second, they looked like a table and not just like an auditorium. Why did they do what they did? And, and just let's have a look again at what's energizing this movement that, that grows so quickly, that changes the world so dramatically. We're told in Acts chapter two, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. If you are new to church, that language might be very strange. What do you do with that? Well, we'll get back there in just a second. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Aren't all these simple people is the language that we might read into that. Aren't all these Nebraskans or Iowans or something like that? I'm just giving you a hard time, you people from other places. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And then they ask this question that we began to ponder last week and we'll finish with this week. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much 
wine. And now at this moment, when this church has started to unleash itself on the world, it's the job of Peter, one of the leaders of this small group of Jesus followers, to stand up and he's going to answer their question, the same question that we might have. What, what does this mean? He gets to answer that now his answer begins in an interesting fashion. When you go to seminary, one of the things they try and reinforce to you is the beginning of your sermon is fairly important. It has to be interesting. It has to connect with people. If people don't find it interesting, they just switch off. It has to make a statement. And Peter is about to give the first sermon that takes place in this new church movement. He gets this responsibility, this possibility, and he's about to deliver potentially the worst opening that any sermon has had ever in history. Maybe the worst since Jonah, the prophet of the Old Testament, went into a town of hundreds of thousands of people and said basically repent and turn to God otherwise you're all going to die this one may be worse than that one here we go this is what he says then Peter stood up with the 11 all these possibilities come to mind what's he going to say how's he going to announce this story of Jesus raised his voice and addressed the crowd fellow Jews and all you live in who live in Jerusalem let me explain this to you listen carefully to what I say here we go these people are not drunk that's his opening to the first sermon it's sounds like something someone would say when getting pulled over by a police officer. You open the window and the police officer comes to the window and you say, I'm not drunk. <laughs> Honestly, I promise you I haven't been drinking is the first moment, first introduction to any kind of sermon in the early church. It seems like such a missed opportunity. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It's such a weird defense, and yet it gets much better. I've often contemplated how God felt about this first moment that the church is unleashed on the world, this first opening line. It kind of, you hear it, and you're like, okay, well, it can only go up from here. It can't get any worse than this, and yet I've heard some sermons that definitely have matched it over the years. Uh, I think the first time I was asked to give a sermon, I was asked to speak for 15 minutes, thought I would remember everything I wanted to say, talked for about 45 seconds, and then sat down and everyone very generously clapped and all the things that they do when you're 16 years old and trying to do something really difficult. It's only nine o'clock in the morning is what he says. But then he goes on to unpack something more concrete, something more distinct about what is happening here, a more definite answer to their question, what does all this mean? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. But what does he mean by that? That language, if you've been in church for a long time, you may say, okay, I think I have some sense of what is going on. But, but what did it mean to people that first heard it? So for a long time, there'd been language around, I will pour out my spirit on all people in lots of different ways in this Jewish Old Testament. That promise was not perhaps distinct. Sometimes it looked different to how it looks now, but it was there. It was lurking under the surface. But as we unpack this, one of the things that we might know, one of the important things is this word spirit in almost every ancient language is the same word as the word for breath. When you read in the Greek language, the word pneuma, it means spirit, yes, it also means breath. When you read in the Hebrew language, the word ruach, it means spirit, yes, but it also means breath. What we see here is this idea, yes, I will pour out my spirit, but also I will pour out my breath. 
on all people. In some languages today, some modern languages, the idea of the Holy Spirit is still referred to literally as the holy breath. Something was going to happen, we were told, where God would come and he would breathe on or in his people and that would transform things or change things. But this puts us in some theological territory that some of us might say we find a little bit difficult to navigate, maybe a little bit confusing, maybe throws us off a little bit in our following of this Jesus story. You might be familiar with the word Trinity, and yet for a whole bunch of people trying to follow Jesus over the years, they would say that when they hear Trinity, they find the concept itself very difficult. I've chatted to many people who said, I can really get on board with Jesus. And the, the idea that there is God in heaven definitely makes sense. But I struggle with this idea that you seem to be sharing with me that God is one and he's three at the same time. What does it mean to talk about spirit as a person in amongst a God who is one and yet three at the same time. For some of you, you might say, I've just struggled with that and kind of accepted that I would just never understand it. One of the interesting things, one of the things I love about this Jesus faith is it never seems to shy away from making bold statements or statements that seem like a difficulty intellectually. We follow a faith, for those of you that would call yourself Jesus followers, who, that proclaims someone died and then three days later rose again. Who e that equally celebrates that at one point, at some future point in history, all of us who have died will physically rise again. And it says that as a certainty with no intellectual intellectualization of it whatsoever. The same might be true of this statement about God as three in one. While the Bible never uses the word Trinity, it definitely seems to reflect this idea that God is one God and yet has this reflection of three different persons. And it says it knowing, I would suggest, that that might be a struggle for some of us intellectually. If your goal, if my goal is to understand intellectually this idea of three and one, then I wonder if we're not missing the main point. I could give you a couple of illustrations this morning. I could grab H2O and I could show it you in the form of steam and as ice and as liquid. And I could say, look, you can see something that is three in one. I could pick other illustrations from nature. And yet we all know that those illustrations eventually, they break down at some point. How can we ever really take the idea that God is three and there's three distinct persons who has all of their own personality and yet they are one when really we're talking about the divine being? We're not talking about something like water, steam and ice. Somewhere the intellectualization of it is actually damaging. Somewhere this thing is here and it is expressed because it is experienced, not because it's intellectualized. Somewhere this idea that God is three in one is not a statement that the Bible makes. It's a story that the Bible leads us to embrace. Somewhere we take this and we intellectualize it and we end up killing it. The Bible, the writers, for some reason, never choose to use the word Trinity. It's just not in there. And yet we see reflected over and over again this relationship that God seems to have within himself that is compelling and, and was experienced by the first followers of Jesus.
These first followers of Jesus were Jewish people that had known that there was one God and that was very clear in their writings and their understandings. And then they experienced Jesus. They experienced Jesus who came and explained this father to them in ways that they could never have understood before and talked about himself as son. And to Jewish people listening, they were pretty clear on the fact that this language meant that he was placing himself as equal with God. And you see them as they make these faith statements, as they start to uncover who they believe Jesus is and hear the language that he uses. And maybe the, the big culmination is the moment that John in his entry to his biography or gospel says, in the beginning was the word. He was there before anything else. And he was God and he was with God. And he embraces this idea as Jesus as God living in human flesh. And then Jesus, as he starts to unpack just exactly what he's going to happen, starts to say, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to send someone to be with you. Not something, someone. And this person will be a constant comforter. This person will relate to you in a specific way. Will not just be with you, but eventually will be in you. And he's going to be the person that when this thing explodes and goes everywhere, is not limited by geography or footsteps, but is present in the heart of everyone who calls themselves my follower. That trinity is something that we see as experienced. Yes, there is the importance of theological language like this. This is from the Nicene Creed. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Yes, that theological language is important, but somewhere this thing is not just known, not just intellectualized, but for you and I, it's meant to be experienced. This is a writer out of Fuller Seminary whose name I will attempt to pronounce for those of you that speak something that may be Danish. Uh, I'll probably butcher it, but Veli Mati Karkik, None. Uh, says this, Trinitarian doctrine, like every other key Christian doctrine, was hammered out not in sterile study, but rather in the midst of lived spirituality, prayer, and the worship life of the church. When Peter tries to explain what is happening to these people that aren't sure what is happening, he says this, this is a God thing. This is a spirit thing. God is at work and that's going to change everything. This language of, of Trinity is present not as a distinct concrete piece of language, but as an idea all the way back through the Old Testament. And I picked one story to share with you because I think it's going to illuminate this just a little bit. So this is Genesis chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. A patriarch is sat relaxing, probably a pretty common event for those days. These guys knew how to relax. They had people to do the work for them. They got to sit at the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day and Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. The language is fascinating, right? He starts off with the Lord appeared to Abraham and then he moves on to say three people appeared. The whole story is centered around these three people. Nobody else enters the story, but it's pretty clear pretty quickly. These three people are not everyday ordinary people. They know things that nobody else would know. They see the future in a particularly clear way. They talk in ways that human beings probably wouldn't talk. Somewhere in this story, somewhere in this moment, there is an idea that the Lord appeared to Abraham, God appeared to Abraham, and yet there were three that appeared to him. 
however you read this story, for a long time in church history, this story was taken as an idea or a presentation of Trinity in the language of the Old Testament. So much so that when an artist from the Eastern Church, a guy called Andrei Rublev, began to, to draw pictures and stories to kind of help people who couldn't, under, couldn't read or write to understand the stories that were being shared, he drew this. This is his version of the oak trees uh, at Mamre, simply called Trinity. There are three figures, just as there are in the story, but these three figures are supposed to represent Father, Son, and Spirit. On the left, there is the Father who wears gold because it is the color of heaven, the color of royalty. In the middle, there is the Son who wears red because it's the color of blood and of sacrifice. And he has two fingers on the table, which represents the earth because of his closeness to it, his sacrifice for it. And then finally, the third figure is supposed to be the Spirit who wears blue, and green because it's the colors of earth and he has his whole hand on the table because he's most closely associated with the earth that the table represents still present in amongst his church still bringing life to it but there's another thing about this picture that's fascinating it's not present there right now it's down at the bottom here it's actually missing Somewhere there, there was some other element to this picture which disappeared. It was broken off. Somewhere in this picture, there was supposed to be a mirror. You were supposed to be able to come and look at this picture and see your own face reflected in the mirror and know that the heartbeat of the Abraham story was this. It was God being present and inviting Abraham into relationship. Somewhere the message of the Jesus movement and this, you are invited into relationship and you are invited into relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet for so much of the life of the Western church, we would be able to identify how we understood a concrete relationship with Father. We would understand a concrete relationship with Jesus who died for us. But most of us, if we're honest, struggle to articulate what it is to relate to that spirit. And yet it seems in Peter's early navigation, that's how the whole thing functions. This picture is a picture of what we are invited into. It's what Leonardo Boff called the feast of the redeemed. You are invited into this incredible redemption story that the father has willed because that's his role, that the son has worked and practiced and made happen. And then the spirit comes and he applies it. He enables us to live it out. That is how the thing is designed to function. And if you are missing part of that relationship, if I'm missing part of that relationship, we're missing out on perhaps the greatest gift we've ever received. You are made to relate to this father, to this son, and to this spirit. As Peter concludes his sermon, which definitely gets better as he moves along, uh, it ends with repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. You are invited into a thing that is distinctly powered by this Spirit. What? What are they invited into? Yes, the Spirit thing, but what does this early church look like? Why? What are they invited into? How might we describe it? Firstly, it's a spiritual movement 
Yes, of course, that kind of makes sense. If it's a movement that's crafted by the Spirit, you would expect to be able to describe it as a spiritual movement. We're told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They do the things that we do together today. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Last week, I described it as this. They lived in Jesus' way by the Spirit's sway. He is working in them. He is transforming them. The two images that I showed you uh, may be worth showing again. Somewhere we either live this Jesus journey like this or like this. We either do it with this Spirit power that Peter describes or we do it with an incredible amount of human effort and our limited Capacity. I did have someone after the service last week come and just let me know that I needed to know that sailing is in fact very difficult. Uh, and I may have said that it was very easy compared to rowing and that may not be true. And I'm willing to accept that because I've never done it. But somewhere this power source is not our own. We are harnessing a different power. Somewhere this power source is distinctly driven by who we are. And somewhere this early church was powered by something that wasn't theirs. It's powered by some other kind of power. Yes, the movement is spiritual, but they're also invited into a subversive movement. The Spirit pulls them into a movement that is against the current flow of society. This group of early Jesus followers came together and repeatedly declared this, Jesus is Lord, and that statement was opposed to almost every power structure in the world of that day. To the Jewish leaders, Jesus is Lord was apostasy, was blasphemy, was an anathema. It was something that you couldn't and shouldn't say. It was to describe him as being God. To the Romans, it was a political statement that opposed Rome. The Roman army would travel from town to town and when they started to show that they were militarily stronger they would march into the town and they would make a declaration they would say this Caesar is Lord and the town could say yes we agree Caesar is Lord and the town would be spared and become a Roman town a Roman province or they could say no Caesar is not Lord and then the response would be, then Caesar wills that you die and the town would be wiped off the face of the earth. Whatever the power structure in place, the statement Jesus is Lord was subversive and against everything that the culture of the day stood for. But isn't it interesting, when we enter into something like that, it builds the type of community that will grow, that is compelling, simply because they entered into something that was subversive. This community took on a, spirit, a certain type of life, something that sociologists would say reflected communitas, not community, this extra type of community that seems like it bonds people together. I've got this beautiful picture of the pilgrims fleeing England for some reason, I don't know, religion or something like that. Some reason they chose to get out of town. But what we read as we read stories about it is that it built a specific type of community. This is the Clapham sect opposing slavery. It built a specific type of community because they were working against something that was huge and, and, and trying to destroy that very thing. 
the early church, in, sorry, the, uh, the underground church in China reflects some of those same qualities. When the ruler of China began pulling down churches, as the church went underground, there was a fear for sociologists that it would disappear off the map completely. And as the curtain begin to, began to drop and they began to get access again to China, they expected to find a church that was decimated and had disappeared. And yet what they found was a church that had grown by five times, maybe 10 times, maybe 20 times what it was beforehand. Something about forcing it underground had captured some of this subversive DNA and the thing had grown and grown and grown. Something about opposing something bigger than you, about having some conflict builds community that is a different type of community. You see this in literature with the four hobbits that just want six meals a day and to live in peace and to farm their land and all those different things and yet they go off on this big quest and it builds some kind of community and Tolkien even reflects the dangers that you might face if you jump into something like that you just may never know where it leads it's a dangerous business he said going out your door you step onto the road and if you don't keep your feet there's no knowing where you might be swept off to I wonder if that doesn't reflect the feelings of some simple Galilean fishermen who suddenly find themselves in places like Rome as this story has caught them up and produced something because they are a subversive movement captured up into this community that is deep and long-lasting. My question is, how do we capture that if that's the thing, if the Spirit uses this thing to harness this church and to make it grow, how do we capture that in a community that doesn't require that we be subversive? In a culture that doesn't require that we be subversive? Because we all walked through the doors fairly freely this morning, all entered into this worship of Jesus without any questions and made declarations like Jesus is Lord without any fear of any ramifications whatsoever. If this is what made it grow, if this is what captured that distinct sense of community that they had, this intense community that could be called communitas, how do we capture that? Is there anything that we can do that reflects that subversiveness? Well, maybe as we unpack this story just a little bit more quickly, there is something that we might land on. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. There's this reliance on each other that is compelling. But I would suggest what that reflects is that they are invited into not just a spiritual movement, not just a subversive movement, but into a specifically spatial movement. What do I mean by spatial? Spatial is this piece of language that reflects space, yes, physical, but also time. All kinds of different space might be reflected in that sentence. And just look at this passage. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. In amongst the gathering that we do right now, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. There's a different type of gathering that is around breaking of bread, that is around hospitality, that is around community. They were a spatial movement, spatial community, in that they took the time to be with each other. And I wonder if that today for us isn't just a little bit subversive 
to the culture that we live in right now. I'm on a bit of a rabbit hole personally in my reading with the idea of food and what it says about our culture. It all began when I started reading a, a book by the founder of Shake Shack who talks about hospitality and how he about engaging people that walk through the doors of his many restaurants. As I began reading this book, I began asking this question, what does our food choices say about us as a community whenever we order food as a staff? This is where we go. Why do we go there? Why do we go there? I would suggest for a few different reasons. I would suggest we pick Chipotle because everyone gets to choose their own thing. I would suggest we go to Chipotle because it's quick and it arrives when it says it will arrive. And I would pick, say we pick Chipotle because the quality may not absolutely be the best, but we know that it will be reasonable. I would say Chipotle reflects the culture of the American church. We want that. We want speed. We want efficiency. And we want to get to choose what we want to choose. It doesn't seem like a food choice that would be made by the early church that enjoyed slowness, that recognized the importance of care for each other and sharing things in common. I wonder whether there's something there that, that we are called to push into. Because every single one of you, I would guess, probably has a table and every one of you has people that you gather around it with and yet the culture of the day says this, we need to speed that up, let's make that efficient, let's feed people in batches, let's make it quick. And I have a small group. One of the things that I value about my small group is this, we eat together every time we gather is that easy when there's 20 people all together? It's definitely not. But does it change how we interact with each other? It definitely does. Somewhere this early church practiced this art form of hospitality, whether they knew that's what they were doing or not. They gathered people in and they celebrated because they weren't a Chipotle church. They were something, they were something different. As we think about what it is to gather around a table and what it is for a church to reflect tables more than it reflects an auditorium, I just wonder if we go back to that picture that Rubalev created, that picture of the spirit who places his hand on the table, who places his hand on the earth because he is the one that is most associated and I want it with it. And I wonder what it would look like if we embraced this idea, the idea that the spirit lingers by our tables. The Spirit lingers by our tables as we gathered, gather, waiting, just waiting to be invited in because he operates like a gentleman who always waits for an invite. But I wonder if just like that picture, he longs to place his fingerprints on our tables. What do I mean by fingerprints? I have a four-year-old, and as a fun little announcement, uh, Laura and I are expecting a fourth child, which is going to be a fascinating addition to... Uh, <laughs> So somewhere in a few months, I'll take a couple of weeks off so I can be in our hospital room calmly saying, breathe, breathe, breathe in my delightfully doolery way. But this, this four-year-old has fingerprints that he loves to cast wherever he goes. I grabbed just a few shots of them just yesterday night. This, this was after everything had been cleaned, by the way. This is his 
chair that he has Nutella on or something like that. I grabbed a couple of pictures of the table that he'd recently blessed with his presence. You can see just marks of where he has been. And then finally, the television screen, even though it's on the wall and it's supposed to be high up, somewhere there's a whole handprint right there. Um, Because wherever he goes, he leaves traces of where he has been. I wonder for us as we gather around tables that that spirit lingers by those tables and longs to leave traces of where he has been, longs to be present in a specific way and and that when he does that, he might bring transformation through our tables. I would suggest that the early church was powered not by auditoriums, but powered specifically by table gatherings, powered by hospitality, powered by what it was to invite people in. And when you invited in to give them space to linger, to invite that spirit to be present and to see transformation as he made himself present. When Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, I wonder if part of that grieving is not denying entry, of not allowing space, of reflecting father, yes, of son, yes, but missing that voice of the Spirit who has always been the power source of this church, who has been the thing that it, whose presence it has abide. The Jewish community at Passover do something specific. There's a seat that's always left open. It's a seat specifically left for Elijah who we're told will pave the way for Messiah. We believe that event has already taken place. And what I would suggest is the Spirit doesn't need a specific chair but he does need space. This movement was a spiritual one, yes. It was a subversive one, yes, but it was a spatial one. And that it took the area of table, created space for spirit at that table. And that is how it saw transformation. We're going to come to a table that is different and yet the same because the tables that those early church gathered with were the same tables that they did this thing at. They gathered and they took what was most common to them. They took bread and they took wine and they remembered Jesus through them. They remembered his body broken as the bread. They remembered the wine as his blood that was shed for them. They gathered around those tables and reflected back on that story and the life that it had brought them. And we get to do the same. We're going to close. I'm going to invite you to come and take the elements. And we're going to do them in a communal way. I'm going to invite you to take them back to your seats. And then when we're ready, we're going to turn to each other. And I'm going to invite you to make that statement to each other. This is the body and the blood of Jesus given for you. And amongst that, there's some things you might want to reflect on. You might reflect on that gift. Maybe you've never embraced that gift that Jesus has given. Or maybe you've lost touch with the fact that this this movement is a spirit movement. That Jesus' death and resurrection gave you access to this spirit, to that relationship. Maybe the idea of gathering with people is intimidating, of making new friendships, of making new community is a scary thought. Maybe you've lost your confidence in your ability to do that. Perhaps you wonder if your hospitality is even wanted or needed. If that's you, there's some people that would love to gather and pray with you. Maybe you came in with another burden, but there'll be people dotted around that would love to just whisper a word of prayer for you and with you. As we take these elements together, we remember that Jesus came 
gave his blood and gave his body. Yes, so that we could know redemption. But that redemption will give us access to the Spirit who is our one marker of community. It is the thing that we have in common. One of the tension points to something like circles is this. We get to go out of there and we get to sign up for things that we're passionate about, things that we find to be important. And yet you can take something like those things and find someone who is completely opposed to the thing that you love. And yet what we're told is this, is if you have spirit in common, then your, your commonality is greater than any outside interest, any outside activity that you might pursue. There is something for those of us that call ourselves Jesus followers that binds us together in a distinct way beyond any activity, beyond any hobby, by, beyond any type of nation, ethnicity, any of those things. When we come to this table, we reflect the fact that we are a community of people that are following Jesus. And those separated by time and space and all sorts of other things, there is something about that that brings us together. We are Jesus' people following His way by the power of this Spirit that He has given. Let's pray. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.